0: This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we dig further into St. Luke's Gospel with Lazarus and the rich man. Increase our faith, unworthy servants, 10 lepers, and as the lightning. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendoors.org or your favorite podcast provider.
1: That is the TALIS Scholars and Peter Phillips with the Great Service Creed. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, those words of the Nicene Creed, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. There's a lot said there, but if you look into Holy Scripture, you might find not so much written about the Holy Spirit. There might be a reason for that. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Monday afternoon, March the 13th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Pastor Will Whedon will lead us through part five of our series on the Nicene Creed. We'll spend some time with Matthew Smits, author of a First Things column titled How Gay Marriage Changed America. And then we'll conclude our short series with Dr. John Bambaro on Preaching the End Times. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois. Formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books Celebrating the Saints, Thank, praise, serve, and obey, and see my Savior's hands. And he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, welcome back. Thank you so much, Todd. It is sad to know that when asked in surveys, a disturbing percentage of Christians in America will say yes to something like the Holy Spirit is a divine force or a divine power as opposed to the Holy Spirit is a divine person. Let's talk about the personhood of the Holy Spirit to
0: begin with. Yeah, it is terribly sad that that's sort of become the norm for so many people. But it's also a little understandable as you intimated with your introduction. My favorite uh, d- description of of how difficult the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is is given by Dorothy Sayers in her delightful little book, A Mind of the Maker. And in that, uh, she quips about how as the missionaries were bringing the gospel to China a native of China equipped well holy father i think i understand holy son i think i understand but holy bird i do not understand and, you know we smile when we hear it because the holy spirit is beyond shadow of doubt the most mysterious member of the holy trinity and As you noted in the New Testament, he's dwarfed by the number of mentions of the Father and of the Son. Certainly though the Holy Spirit is indeed confessed in the New Testament and perhaps the most stunning reason for why it's he's not given bigger play there is because the Holy Spirit has the delightful job of getting behind a person and pointing them directly to the Lord Jesus and through him to the Father. And you frustrate the work of the Holy Spirit when you're always trying to turn around and get a gander at him. He's like, no, focus here. And he's trying to direct your attention solidly toward the Lord Jesus. Another way that Zasa, the uh, great uh, mid-century uh, theologian from Germany, put it. He said, who thinks about the air you breathe? That's kind of like how the Holy Spirit is. He was filling the pages of the New Testament. In fact, as we're going to hear and as we work our way through it, he actually inspired them all there. They literally flow from him. But they are above all pointing you to the Savior and to what he has done. And Zasa said, if you didn't have for certain Jesus' words in John 14, 15, and 16, you might could pull off this thing about the Holy Spirit being more of force or whatever, but he pointed to that and said, that just kind of puts the nail in that. So just think about some of these words. From John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper counselor comforter paraclete it's another one because he's the first one and as he is a person how is the father giving something less than a person to his own here even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him because he dwells with you and will be in you and then he says a little later in the chapter these things i said to you while i'm still with you But the helper, the Holy Spirit of the Paraclete, whom the Father will send to you in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Again, this is the act of a person, not the sort of thing that you would just have from a force. It's a person who can say, hey, don't you remember when he said? And that's what the Holy Spirit uh, indeed does does for the holy apostles. So I think we can see very clearly from the way Jesus speaks of the Spirit, from the coordination in the Trinitarian baptismal command of Matthew 28, where you have Father in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. If the Father is a divine person and the Son is a divine person, it's manifest then that the Holy Spirit also is going to be a divine person. Similarly, you see this in things like uh, the apostolic reading in 2 Corinthians 13. So, the the bible's teaching is that the spirit is himself a person and i'd like to kind of think about how we got to what we have in the nicene creed now so it started out at nicaea in 325 it just ended and in the holy spirit period the end said nothing more than and in the holy spirit and then In the years between 325 and 381, you had people who were called the Panoimatomachians, people who were fighters against the Spirit. Just as there were Arians who denied that the Son is true God, there were people who denied that the Holy Spirit is true God. And against them, the great champion was St. Basil the Great. He wrote an absolutely stunning little book on the Holy Spirit, which uh, is still a classic, still read and studied to this day. His friend, Nazianzus, is the man who presided over the council in 381. But it is Basil's theology which is championed there. And so very clearly the Cappadocian picture of the Holy Spirit is the one that that makes it into this expanded version of the Creed. So when it starts and ends the Holy Spirit, the next thing you hear about him, it doesn't say, who is true God himself? It says, the Lord and giver of life. So that invites us to sort of stop and think about what you know about the spirit from scripture itself. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, Todd, but I think it's fascinating that you meet the Holy spirit in the Bible before you meet the son. The first thing you learn is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless, shapeless and void, empty and The spirit of God, Ruach Yahweh, was, what's the word? Sweeping or brooding or flying. It's a bird word. He was flying over the surface of the waters. And uh, from this, he will be seen as creating and forming things and shaping the world. He becomes the agent that the father uses in creation together with his word, which he will then, we meet in verse 3 of Genesis 1. So I think it's fascinating that we have uh, right away in the Bible the Holy Spirit. One complicating factor is that the word spirit is used, uh, the, the the vocable, ruach, in the Hebrew penoima in the Greek, it can mean spirit, it can mean wind, it can mean breath. And sorting that out can be a little uh, uh, dicey, right? In which instance is the word, how is it being used in a given situation? Um, A wind from God was sweeping over the waters or the spirit of God was sweeping over the waters? Which one is it? And as the Bible continues to unfold, we just meet more and more references to the spirit of God who is then designated as the Holy Spirit. And Luther, specifically, in the large catechism, pointed to that term holy and said, that's how you really need to understand the Spirit. What the Spirit does, it's his great job to make holy. He does this by bringing you to Christ to receive everything that Jesus died and rose again to give you. The Spirit is the one who sanctifies, who makes holy. And that's, again, is an act of a person, not merely of some sort of impersonal, In addition to Genesis 1, you have the spirit and the word coordinated in Psalm 33, verse 6. Listen, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and by the breath or spirit of his mouth all their host. So you see son and spirit working in coordination with the task of creation. But I think you really get to the, you know, he's the Lord, but he gets the, the, the term giver of life. I really think that primarily it comes from Ezekiel 37. Is it okay if I actually read that passage? Okay. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones and he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. I love that. <laughs> like he, when the Lord asks you a real challenging question to back off and say, well, you know, why are you asking me? You're the one who knows the answer. Well, then he said to me, prophesy over these bones. And say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will put sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, so that's a word thing, right? As I spoke the word, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. The bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come on them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. So recognize this then as the reconstitution of the human body, right, of human nature. It's actually been restored by the speaking of the word, but yet they were not animated. There was no spirit in them yet. So then he's commanded, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. The breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. I think in this dual action move here, you see what has happened with the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, his Paschal uh, mystery of suffering, death, resurrection. This is what has restored human nature. But then for this to become animated and alive in the lives of individual human beings, it requires the coming of the person of the Holy Spirit to them. He's the one who brings to life what Christ has finished and done for us, upon calvary's tree so there you get a picture of the twofold action of Son and spirit both divine beings both fully divine and yet they are distinct from one another, they should not be confused. The nearest the New Testament comes to sort of identifying is when Paul says, the Lord is the spirit. Most of the time he uses the word Lord to identify the Lord Jesus. But it's clear from everything else he wrote, he does not believe that the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the same person. Boy, there's so many other scripture passages we need to look at, is it okay to keep going? Let's take a little break, and when we come back, we'll go back through some of these others that
1: establish the scriptural foundations for the Holy Spirit as the Lord and giver of life. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. When defending a biblical doctrine or practice, have you ever been accused of not caring for the lost? I've written a column in the latest Issues Etc. journal titled Playing the Mission Card. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Jeremy Lamont recounts his slow and sometimes painful path out of Mormonism to the Lutheran Confession. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org.
2: Does this sound like your church budget process at the end of the year? You get last year's budget and go through with a committee line by line, maybe what we should spend next year. Maybe you have a prayer. But where's the word of God in this process? When do the people hear what the small catechism says about giving and why we do it? Contact us at LCMS Stewardship so that we can help you fix this process, put the word of God first, and put your congregation on a good fitting lcms.org slash stewardship. Defending the faith, teaching the truth. You're listening to Issues Etc.
1: Saving faith is a living, creative, active, and powerful thing, Martin Luther writes. How can it not be? It is created by our loving God through His living words and life-giving deeds. Living Faith Lutheran Church is located at 1171 Atlanta Highway in Cumming, Georgia. Come train in God's Word with us for the baptized life in our adult catechumenate. Find out more on the web at livingfaithlutheran.com.
0: Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching, step by step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide
2: your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. Simplyclassical.com.
1: Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series on the Nicene Creed, Part 5, with Pastor Will Whedon. We're talking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Will, you started us out with Genesis 1, Psalm 33, and then Ezekiel 37. Where would you go
0: next in the scriptural foundations for the Holy Spirit as the Lord of life? Next, I want to sort of just back up a chapter to Ezekiel 36, where in verses 25 to 27, we read, the prophecy of what will become baptism. And the spirit is always very closely tied to the gift of baptism. God promises, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then we get to the the gold passage. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promises through this special washing, which Ezekiel is foretelling, that God will use this washing to give the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can't help but think about the day of Pentecost, right? And the apostle Peter preaching that day, and he tells the the people when they're so struck, what are we supposed to do? We mean, Okay, we've killed our Messiah. What are we supposed to do? Peter says, oh, that's simple. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit spirit and the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. Then we go a few chapters further into Acts and we read in Acts 5 verse 3 a rather interesting exchange with Peter. This is Ananias and Sapphira, remember the people who lied. And so listen to what Peter says. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain with you? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Listen, you have not lied to man, but to God. Okay, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. So they lied to the Holy Spirit, that is, you have lied to God. Therefore, we may conclude that to St. Peter, the Holy Spirit, of course, was God. We also see um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, St. Paul said, uh, listing out a whole bunch of unsavory behaviors, and he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So this is talking about baptism and by the Spirit of our God. There's the Trinity right there. Baptized into Jesus, given the Holy Spirit, who indeed in Christ brings you to the Father. In 1 Corinthians 12, of course, you have the most amazing statement from St. Paul, where he says, I want you to understand, nobody ever speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus cursed. And absolutely no one can make the confession that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit. Or think about Romans 8 also, verse 11. If the Spirit of him, that would be the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you will give life to your mortal bodies. This is the picture of spiritual regeneration and of the resurrection of your body on the last day and both of these are the work of God the Holy Spirit who is himself both the Lord and the giver of life we come to the procession
1: of the Holy Spirit because we talk about the father he begets the son is begotten and the Holy Spirit does not beget, he does not, he is not begotten, but he proceeds. Those are the words of the Athanasian Creed. Right. What is it, before we get into the 1,000-year the argument we've been having with the Orthodox Church, where we might be talking past each other on from whom he proceeds, what does it mean
0: that he proceeds? My favorite answer to this was given by Philip Melanchthon, who put it into a little rhyme in Latin. Quid sid nasci, quid processus me nescare sum professus, which means, Ah, uh, what it means to be begotten and what it means to proceed. I really don't know. I'm just confessing what he said. Uh, so, in other words, the one who knows finds significance in the words procession and begotten, describing the relationship. What is the difference in God between what it is to be begotten and what it is to be? emitted or proceeding from, we can't even begin to guess at that. We simply note when God reveals himself to us, when the Trinity reveals himself to us, these are the words which are used to describe those inner Trinitarian relationships. It's not our job to explain them. It is our job to adore the one who is revealing them to us in that way. I know that kind of sounds like I'm schwaffling. I hope not. It's just a confession of, you know, a very clear confession that we don't have a, whenever you come to what's going on inside the Trinity, you have no source of information except the Trinity himself. And when he explains himself, he still leaves much that is mysterious. So we're going to say that procession
1: is what happens, what the Holy Spirit does when The Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. But that's only a part of it because that's a specific promise. This is an eternal procession. Right. As we said, I think earlier in our conversation, the Father is the source of the Godhood, and the Son and the Holy
0: Spirit are fully divine, but their divinity is from the Father. Correct. And because the divinity is from the Father, we have to confess then. Father is a very word that by its very use, it implies always that there is a son present, right? You're not a father without a son. This father never had a time when he didn't have his son eternally with him. And so even though we confess the actual words that the Nicene Creed originally used, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, were lifted directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he said, John 15, verse 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And when Jesus says the spirit proceeds from the father, that's very clearly stating that the spirit is in some way coming from, he derives his being from the Father, but from the Father in his relationship to the Son, because there is no Father without a Son. I think one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture to kind of show the, the procession of the Spirit from both is, well, it, it could come across as a kind of a, a mystical, but do you remember in Revelation chapter 22? Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The river of life flows from the Father and from the Lamb. It comes to us from both. And that's a a, a real key. We're going to have to dig into that when we look at how Jesus speaks in John 7. We'll take a break, and when we come back,
1: we'll continue our conversation with Pastor Will Whedon. It's part five of our series on the Nicene Creed. I'm Todd Wilkin. You're connected to issues, etc. Our guest, Pastor Will Whedon, is author of Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. These books are published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. Or learn about Pastor Whedon's books on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. We'll talk more about the scriptural foundations for the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son next.
2: Issues, etc. listeners are needed to vote for president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has the right to vote through a pastoral and a lay voter, two voters per congregation or parish. Voter registration must be completed by midnight central on March 19th of 2023. Request to be a voter at your congregation for president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations.
0: Have you heard of the nuns? I'm not talking about Roman Catholic women who wear habits. Rather, I'm talking about those who mark nun on religious preference surveys. It is the fastest growing religious group in the United States, and it's something we need to pay attention to. The March issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up this question regarding where they come from, what they believe, and how we can point them to Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of their sins. To learn more, pick up your copy of The Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective.
1: Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and lay people worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy promotes confessional Lutheran theology through conferences, scholarly exchanges, and publications like Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up for their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com.
2: spiritual, and religious. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations
1: for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Bethany Lutheran, Naperville, Illinois. Elm Grove Lutheran, Elm Grove, Wisconsin. Grace Lutheran, Henderson, Nevada. Emmanuel Lutheran, Alexandria, Virginia. Mount Calvary Lutheran, Lidditz, Pennsylvania. Pacific Hills Lutheran, Omaha, Nebraska. Reformation Lutheran, Hillsboro, Oregon, St. John Lutheran, Springfield, Pennsylvania, St. Paul Lutheran, Wildwood, Missouri, University Hills Lutheran, Denver, Colorado, and Trinity Lutheran, Scottsboro, Alabama. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. Sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. Journal. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part five of our series on the Nicene Creed. Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever is our guest. So let's pick up where we left off there. Uh, Where else would you point us in Scripture to describe or to find the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son?
0: Well, if you remember, we just had reviewed from Revelation 22 the picture of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So if you go to John seven you really encounter an interesting statement by Jesus. Beginning at verse 37, it was the last day of the feast, the great day. Jesus stood up and he cries out, hey, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And well, and here's where we get a translational issue. I would argue that at this point, the text should be read, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. Since as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, as in referring not to the believer, but to Christ. Now this he said about the Spirit, who those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, for Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus speaks of the Spirit as literally flowing like a river out from his heart. I think that has huge implications given what we saw in Revelation 22. Certainly Jesus teaches, as the Nicene Creed originally confessed, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. But you also have Jesus saying in John chapter 5, verse 19, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. And then these are the words that really matter. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Whatever the Father does, that the Son also does, so we shouldn't be surprised if there is indeed a correspondence between what we might call the uh, you know the the economy the the acting out of salvation and theology the internal relations of the Trinity if they correspond to each other, well then in John twenty Jesus breathes on his disciples and says receive the Holy Spirit this is a beautiful way if you, if you sort of read it back into the theology that the Spirit Himself has a point of origin. From the Son. And that's why we're not surprised when Paul in Galatians 4, verse 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, or the Spirit from his Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Now, I want to be clear that what's happening here with the inclusion of and the Holy Spirit, filioque, that literally means and that he proceeds from the Father. And the Son. This means that you're having a collision of sorts between a Western way of confessing the Trinity and an Eastern way of confessing the Trinity. And we saw at the very beginning that the Eastern Church tends to derive the unity of the Trinity from the person of the Father, and therefore. Dreifaltigkeit the German word for, for the, what they do. This sort of a threefoldness to the Trinity. Whereas in the Western church, it's very much Dreieinigkeit, a three-oneness to the Trinity. And you see this is really achieves classic expression in St. Augustine's beautiful little book on the doctrine of the Trinity. And the way that Augustine conceives of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is a person he's a person but he is the person who is the joy and love which the father gives to the son and which the son returns to the father so if you sort of picture that kind of language the holy spirit as joy and love as a person eternally flowing between father and son you get why the expression and the son makes its way into the nicene creed in areas of the western church where this was common we know i you know it it sort of achieves canonical status in the west at the council of the third council of toledo in 589 in spain where they're still very much battling the arian heresy and it becomes to them a way of confessing the truth of the eternal son being god to say that what the father does the son does also this is a real confession of jesus as true god himself and It's not like this is a novelty at this point. I would point to uh, Cyril of Alexandria in his uh, third letter to Nestorius. He says, the spirit pours forth from him, that is the son, as he, of course, does from God the father, pours forth. Notice the liquid verb there. He does bird verbs and liquid verbs. That's what scripture usually uses to express what the spirit's doing. He's poured out or he is doing this uh, flying thing. So also in the commentary on John 14, Cyril of Alexandria says another paraclete, however, is what he calls the spirit, listen to these words, who is from the essence of the father and from his own essence. So that's really amazing. Uh, Dr. David Maxwell pointed that one out to me, and I'm very grateful to him for showing me that. Cyril then is, is a proponent, if you will, of the idea that there is an eternal relationship with the Spirit who has with the Son as well as with the Father. And that just kind of underlies the Western thought of the unity of the three persons together. So what finally happened that caused this whole big blow up in the church? Photius was the patriarch of Constantinople and in, in uh, 867, rather. He was really mad with Rome, and he was looking for a way, I think, to actually pin something on the Western church. And so he began teaching that it is heresy, heresy to say that the spirit proceeds also from the Son. That what the Nicene Creed meant when it said the Spirit proceeds from the Father is that the Spirit proceeds from the Father alone. But the little word alone isn't in there. I mean, the fathers at Nicaea simply confessed the Spirit comes from the Father, proceeds from the Father. When this thing becomes accepted in Spain, the Filioque, it begins to spread and as it spreads across the West, it's actually accepted throughout much of Europe, in the, you know, Northern Europe, before it makes its way into Rome. Rome has always maintained and maintains to this day that, in fact, I think any Western Christian would, that you can confess the Nicene Creed the original way, and that is not a problem. The only problem arises when you deny by doing that that the Spirit also proceeds from the Son. When you say that that's heresy, That's when you've gone a step too far. And once somebody says that, the truth demands that you come back and say, "Uh, no, we have to confess then that the Spirit also proceeds from the Son. That was not denied at Nicaea. It was not denied at Constantinople. But when Photius, uh, the patriarch of Constantinople, denies it, 867, from that point on, the Western church became a little more recalcitrant and saying, no, we have to say this now because you've said that we're teaching heresy when we say it. So here's an email from Mike.
1: He says, hi, Pastor, where are the Lutherans on the filioque, what we've just been discussing? Jesus clearly said that he would ask the Father to send the helper. How is it that the Nicene Creed states that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son? And in the big scheme of my salvation, does this small point matter take up that last question there
0: yeah well let's actually can we do let's deal with the whole thing we'll take up the last point first in the big scheme of your salvation i do not believe this matters at all the vast majority of christians across history have confessed filioque have said that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son lutherans say that anglicans say that roman catholics say that presbyterians say that methodists say that that's how the, the thing has been confessed it's the eastern churches that have denied it and yet, even at the time of, of Photius, it was not like a kind of universal denial. There was one man in particular who worked really, really, really hard to find a middle way between the East saying, Father only, and the West saying, Father and the Son. And his name was Maximus the Confessor. The poor man had his tongue cut out for uh, you know refusing to be silent on the, the, the heresy that Christ has only one will. Because he has two natures, he has to have two natural wills. So Maximus, though, uses a mediating phrase where he says the Holy Spirit proceeds principally from the Father through the Son, and that this is how he is then eternally related to both. I think the idea there is one that St. Augustine would never have disagreed with. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, if the Spirit is the personal love and joy between Father and son, then from the father, he comes to the son, from the son, he returns to the father. You see how it would work both ways. And so the son is involved in an eternal procession. I was really struck when a friend of mine became Orthodox. He uh, he was an Orthodox priest for a number of years. He and I went went over and over and over this area and he just stressed, you know, the filioque is rank heresy. This is why I have to become Orthodox. What was really funny to me was when, after I think it was about maybe 10 years in Orthodoxy, guess what he became? Take a guess. I can't guess what it would be. A Byzantine Catholic, which is a Catholic who is subservient to Rome and who admits that the Filioque is not heresy. So he uses the Eastern Rite but he is obedient to the Pope as the head of the church. So, so why? why? <laughs> I've never had the chance to get there and say to him, hey, I want to talk to you about the filioque. Remember those knockdown dragouts we had over this? This is a real question. How can you simply say all of a sudden it doesn't matter? And I thought, unless it really doesn't matter. The problem as I see it is strictly that Photius insisted on alone knock that out of the out of the equation and then you don't have the east saying that the west is heretical and then the west would have a little bit more room to be sensitive to the east's canonical arguments and what i mean by that is okay you're a lutheran you know that when melanchthon treated the augsburg confession as his own to make changes to He was acting kind of unfaithfully. We call that out, right? The variata, we're like, it's the church's document. You didn't have the right privately change it on your own. That's the argument of the East about the creed, where they would say, hey, guys, come on now. It belongs to the whole church. What are you doing changing something in it? And I honestly think if if the East had not proceeded to announce, well, what you've done is actually inserted a heresy into the creed then I think it would have been a whole different long history of the matter. But because the East insists mostly to this day that it is heresy to say that the Spirit proceeds from the Son, I really think the Western church has absolutely no choice but to insist, well, then we're going to have to continue to confess that the Spirit truly does indeed have an eternal relationship of origin with the Son. With about 30 seconds, next time we'll take up, or at least begin with the words, who together with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. What lies ahead for us? Yeah, as we look at that, we're going to see that the persons of the Trinity, each one receive worship. And I think an interesting area that we will particularly try to unpack is the the fact that uh, despite confessing that we glorify and worship Father, Son, Holy Spirit together— We see in the church's history of development a real hesitation, especially in the East and in Rome, to call upon the Holy Spirit as true God in the same way that the Father and the Son are called on. This is something, by the way, which Lutherans fully developed, and Zasa has, again, several fascinating speculations about that. I can't wait to share with you, but that'll wait till next time.
1: Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, Formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's author of the books Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. He hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study, produced by Lutheran Public Radio, called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Pastor Whedon is leading a study this week in Luke chapter sixteen and seventeen on the rich man and Lazarus, Temptation to Sin, Increase Our Faith, Unworthy Servants, Jesus Cleanses Ten Leopards, and the Coming of the Kingdom of Listen at your convenience at thewordendures.org, the LPR mobile app, or your favorite podcast provider, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever with Pastor Will Whedon. Will, thank you very much. Thank you, Todd. When we return, Matthew Schmitz joins us. He's author of a column for First Things titled, How Gay Marriage Changed America. Find out the means used by great Lutheran music composers to convey meaning in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for March, Lutheran Music and Meaning. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. Or learn more about Lutheran Music and Meaning at issuesetc.org. Lutheran Music and Meaning by Dr. Daniel Zager. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month,
2: 1-800-325-3040 or issuesetc.org. Save the date. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky, with visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Look for more information in early 2023 at lutheransforlife.org slash conference. Lutherans for Life Equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org Confessional Lutherans, we've got your back. You're listening to Issues Etc. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org.